This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Ilion Wu is, she's done this very, very cool thing where she's taken a true story and made it, uh, you know, this is a word that I shouldn't love, but in this case, it's really, really appropriate. Unputdownable. Master, slave, husband, wife. History is not supposed to be this exciting. I've got plenty of people in my life saying, oh, I don't really read nonfiction. I'm like, well, I have the book for you. So, Ilion, it's so good to see you. Thank you for making You're touring for the paperback. You're everywhere. And you're grabbing a few minutes to talk to us. So I'm really excited about this. Thank you so much. Oh, I can't tell you how excited I am. I mean, I just have to say, I have been speaking a lot, but I am a little bit nervous because, actually, I'm pretty ner- very nervous because this is like my favorite show. Um, ah. Yeah, I'm such a fan. I'm really such a fan. I think it was a, I, I heard you for the first time at the LA Book Festival. I went oh, to go yeah, see yeah. Jasmine right? Chan. Yeah, it was last year. And there were, Jasmine Chan was speaking with three other novelists. And I was like, how is this person going to pull all these four totally different novels together? And then out comes swinging like this wisecracking, like, you know, Asian woman who is, dissing Boston and speaks like she has a martini in her hand, only she doesn't. And I was like, who is she? Who is she? And then I started listening to you. And now like, when I told my family that I was going on with Miwa Messer, my child was like, one of my children was like, like the Miwa Messer. And I was like, yeah, like the one and only. So you've become like a household word. All right. I appreciate that. But that's also why we put the show on YouTube, because the younger said only watches the show on YouTube, like straight up. We know this for a fact, so I'm delighted that your kids actually, you know, watch a podcast here and there. But that was a fun, I mean, when you can put a bunch of writers in a room, right? Like, it is kind of the moderator's job to find the thing where you can bring everyone into the space, whether it's the audience or the other writers, and make sure no one gets left behind. We've all been to events where you're like, "Uh, what did I just see or what did I just hear? (laughs) And, like, my job, really, is to be curious and connect the dots and also be vaguely entertaining. And I mean, you and I are both from Massachusetts, which endless source of bad driving jokes, <laughs> parallel parking jokes, Dunkin' Donuts jokes, cop on a horse jokes. I mean, and we were talking about this before we started taping, the accent. Oh, yeah. Like the accent is gone. And I just, that was so much a part of my childhood. And I, I am not going to attempt to do a Boston accent here because you know what? It, it can't, it's not something you can mimic. Ask any actor, <laughs> like you just, even if you think you're doing it. You really aren't. You can ask a child, actually, the same child who recognized you. Her last name is Park. So, I mean, like, right? (laughs) (laughs) And the car was outside. You know, I was waiting to pick her up. So Mm -hmm. you can imagine what happened. I won't try it. And Boston does factor in to Mm -hmm. your book. And this is your second book. I do want to point that out. And we have so much ground to cover. But Ellen and William Craft. Mm-hmm. pretty extraordinary Absolutely. what they did, how they did it, when they did it. And their story brings them through Boston. But I'm going to ask you to set it up. You've been on all sorts of best of the year lists. The book is out in paperback now. We're totally stoked for a new audience to pick it up. You know, paperback's infinitely portable. We love this. But I love the way you set up the opening mm-hmm. of this book. And I read it in a single sitting. I wow. do really like history. I really do <laughs> like biography. But you do this snappy thing with short chapters and the way you set up the crafts. So would you do that here? 
I would be happy to. Actually, there are two beginnings, right? You're talking mm-hmm. about the overture. Yep. Which is interesting because there were some editorial disagreements about whether it should start with the overture after all, or whether okay. it should start with the, the cabin scene. So the overture, which you love, which I love, mm-hmm. which is how I definitely wanted to, to begin the book. It's like, I mean, maybe, all right, 30 years before, here yep. the overture of 1812, right? It's mm-hmm. like an orchestra setting up the big beats and the big themes that you're going to hear. So we're not talking about a little tiny event that is a footnote in history. We're talking about giant, massive revolutions of 1848. We're talking about a time of information revolution and transportation revolution. And people are shocked that news can travel from one spot to the other. People can travel from one end of the country to the other across the world in such a short amount of time. I mean, it's really like Now, if we think about like the web and information that comes through so quickly, that's what was happening then. People were just marveling. And that's what the crafts, I mean, their story intersects with all those revolutions into their own revolution. And I honestly didn't know who they were until I read your book. I'm a little embarrassed by that, but I do have some gaps. Like many of us, you know, we learn what we learn when we learn it. And they were, even though they'd had their own book, that they'd written after everything had happened. It was one of those, you know, left on a dusty shelf. You found it when you were in graduate school or undergrad? graduate school. Okay. And yet they kind of, yeah, you just set everything up with massive technological changes and, and social changes and whatnot. But they also, because of what they did and how they did it, they changed the conversation around abolition. They changed the conversation around slavery helped end slavery, to be honest. But also, we had some stuff about the State of the Union Mm -hmm. and how divided we were that you put into context in a really excellent, smart way. So let's start with them. We're in Macon, Georgia. All right. They're about to leave. Ellen and William. Can we give a little bit of their backstory? All right. So picture this big... House. I mean, it's still standing in Macon, Georgia today, this mm-hmm. big house with these bo- big four giant pillars. And behind that, there's a cabin. Now, this is an untold privilege for somebody like Ellen to have access to this private space, but she has it because she is a seamstress, a favored house servant, and also the biological half-sister of her legal enslaver. She has access to the space. She has access to information. But she's still, of course, in bondage, um, as is her husband, William. William is also uh, what, you know, they both describe themselves as having more privileges than most enslaved people at this period. So he is a skilled craftsperson. He's made beautiful things, um, furniture, cabinets, and things like that. And um, he's actually made a secret chest of drawers that they've kept in her space. And it locks, and their door locks, and they store within it the clothes that Ellen will wear when she transforms. You had me on the edge of my seat. It takes them four days to go from Macon Mm -hmm. to Boston. And Boston's not really the first place I think of when you're POC or Black running for freedom. Actually, Macon to Philadelphia, but eventually to Boston, yes. Okay, Macon to Philadelphia. Baltimore in between, right? Mm -hmm. Is that Okay, so Macon, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Boston. I keep coming back to Boston only because you and I both know Boston's history, right? Yeah, like you're in a busing. hurry to get to Boston. Uh-huh. I kind of am a little <laughs> bit, only because we're going to unroll it a little bit and work backwards. 
but it was a surprising choice to me that they were making. I mean, some people would go straight for Canada, mm -hmm. right? Philadelphia had a reputation as being safe, but not safe. It's right there on the border. Yeah, right? Yeah. Baltimore, I still think of sort of Maryland as being a little more Southern than some might. There's still slavery in Baltimore. Right. Even though it's, even though there's the highest concentration of free Black people. But yeah, they're trying to get out of Baltimore. So it's clear they've got to get, I mean, obviously, they've got to get out of Macon, right? They've, mm -hmm. they've got to emancipate themselves, essentially, as you, as you describe it in the book. But there's not a lot of great choices to move towards. The stakes are wildly high. Mm -hmm. They can't stay because they know if they stay, they might be separated if, if Ellen's half-sister decides to sell one or the other, or they can't have children because they know their children could be sold. It's all really fraught and very intimate and very personal. And I think a lot of the conversations we've had about our history, our shared history, takes out a lot of the personalities, mm. right? Like we're given presidents and we're given senators and we're given orators or preachers or whatever. You found a really intimate personal story. How are you filling in the gaps, right? Like obviously you're starting with their biography. Obviously you've done a lot of first-person research. You spent a lot of time in Georgia and all of the different parts of this book. Were you in the UK as well? Because they I did. Time. I did go okay, to the UK. So yeah. you really, where they were, you were. Exactly. But how do you put it all together in a way that respects the timeline and the details and the history and the people themselves, but also give us a story that does not stop? That's a huge question. I mean, and that's like sort of the central question that I mm -hmm. really wrestled with, especially around the character of Ellen Craft. Because, you know, we rely heavily on, I relied heavily on their original narrative, the 1860 narrative, but not only does it not go into the before or the after, but the whole thing is written in William Craft's voice. So we now know that it's, it's co-authored because they're describing moments and scenes that, that Ellen must have witnessed as well, but it's still all in his voice. And she's been sort of turned into this retiring, you know, very ladylike character who has to be, who's burst into tears repeatedly and has to be convinced to, to wear the disguise and convinced to do everything that she does. And I wanted to know more about her, that personality. So I went looking for every possible shred of information I could about her, anything that was written in her hand. Unfortunately, most of the things that she wrote, most of the letters are not super personal. They're absolutely beautifully scripted, but she's not expressing a lot of her feelings. So then I kind of had to go get sneaky and um, look at letters uh, where people were, I mean, she was so closely watched because people were utterly fascinated by her. They were describing her visually. They were describing her motions. One woman actually describes her in the UK, Ellen doesn't see this woman. So it's sort of a, I feel, I really feel like we're eavesdropping there. And she describes Ellen as she's working and she sings this line. And I was like, what is this line from? And I took that line and I looked at it against an abolitionist songbook. And I found that song. And the song is called The Fugitive's Triumph. So she's, this is a sort of a very private moment where she's actually, it's like her aria where she's singing of her fugitive's triumph. 
And that's an example of a sort of moment that is not, that, that's sort of barely preserved, but one I feel like where we got a glimpse of who she was. She's dressed as a man. She's dressed as a white man when they escape. Her husband is her slave. She's tied her hand up so that she can't be accused of illiteracy and not being able to write and whatnot. It's extraordinary the way you lay out this story, but it's also extraordinary the choices that they make, Mm -hmm. right? They are absolutely, everything they do is deliberate. There are some close calls that you and I are going to skirt around, obviously, because this, as serious as the subject is and as serious as the story is, this is a really exhilarating read. Like, it's a real-life thriller. And there are some things that happen. There are some folks who help them out without knowing that they're helping them out. There are some folks who would like to very much get in their way and not help them. But we get a really clear sense of the crafts and their world. And world building, you know, it's it's kind of been co-opted a little bit where people are just like, oh, well, that's for science fiction and fantasy and really made up stuff. But you had to take us back to America and England in this very fraught moment for both places. I just love that you brought up the science fiction because that's mm-hmm. exactly what I was thinking of. I mean, I'm not a big science fiction reader mm-hmm. myself, but I read I'm um, only almost only novels really for pleasure. I was thinking about science fiction because that's one situation where you're, you know, it's not like from the page one, they're like, so we're in this world where these creatures have these antennas and They eat only such and such foods, and this is what their world, you know, they're not explaining that to you. You're like going straight into the world, right? You're seeing those antennas, and you just have to kind of figure it out. And that's what I wanted to do for the crafts is like put the reader there, like throw them down at that train station, and you just hit the ground running, and you have to figure it out with them. I stumbled over something as I was researching for the show where you basically come out and say, well, my editor sent me a note when I sent the first draft in. (laughs) My editor said I had... Really just let the research take over. I'm, I'm paraphrasing what you That's said. That's a very right? nice paraphrase, very gentle. Your, your editor really <laughs> said the research had taken over, and, and where were the people? Where were the stakes? Yeah. And it feels like, or at least that suggests to me that there's been a whole rewrite from oh, your original. yeah, okay. absolutely. I, I mean, it, like the whole thing was turned inside out. And listen, there are plenty of writers, obviously, who say that the writing is all in the rewriting, right? But... You've spent how many years on this book? Seven? Something like that, yeah. Okay. Seven years. Untold miles, U.S., U.K. I don't know how many archives, how many miles of paper, how many, you know, pieces of the puzzle you're chasing down in, in all sorts of corners. But you did kind of put the research ahead of the people, and now you've got to rewrite? completely like what is happening here let's can we walk through that process because that's not a small thing there were many many tears many many jelly bellies which is what I used to bribe myself to write especially footnotes but yeah it started with uh Don Davis sent me it was I mean you called it a what did it you called it a note it was actually like six pages was so (laughs) okay It was a very, uh, very long note. Um, and she really just kind of like tore, like, you know, that first paragraph where they say something nice. Um, mm-hmm. She said, I, my, the nice part was that I'd done a staggering amount of research. That was a nice line. And then it, the rest of it was just like, 
Yeah, the the basic problem was that I led with the research. I mean, I found so much stuff. That's the thing. It's like, I'm still finding stuff. And maybe I can tell you about that later. Like, I found stuff like last week. Like, history is alive, right? It's constantly changing and moving. And so it's hard to know when to stop. So basically, kind of had to stop in terms of the writing and really lead with the people. And you know what really helped me out of it? I mean, I, so I looked to a lot of other disciplines. So I looked to music. I looked to theater. I looked to painting. But the one maybe I'll talk about right now is um, screenwriting, because I have, I love movies, and I have studied screenwriting before, and screenwriting is so muscular. Every single moment has to matter. There can't be any extraneous tidbit, and there's no such thing as a footnote in a film, right? So I started using the techniques from screenwriting that I had learned, and specifically, there are things called log lines. You know what a log line is? So a log line is like, on such and such a day, like, so-and-so, like let's say the crafts, they encounter this horrible thing, like the worst thing that ever happened to them. And so they must blank and or, or otherwise they will blank. And it's, it's basically like one sentence. So I wrote a log line for the entire thing, the entire story from beginning to end. Then I did it for sort of each act. Then mm-hmm. I did it for each section. And then I did it really for each chapter. That's what I, I used to try to make myself think about what the stakes are at every single moment. As a reader, I really appreciate it. It was so propulsive. And I really did feel like I was in the room with them. And and again, like there were some serious... Terror is not an inappropriate word for us to use. Like, I mm-hmm. mean, there was there's a lot of terror in this narrative. But your chapters are like maybe five pages, like three to five pages. I mean, they fly. Yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting choice. And I did, honestly, I did notice it because I was like, wait a minute, how am I at the end of of a new chapter already? I'm reading history. Like the chapters are supposed to be a little longer. And I did love the experience, though, of reading because I felt like four days was four days. Yeah. It wasn't like, and then three months later, it was a constant kind of here we are galloping forward, always moving forward always puzzling through who was going to be helpful and who was not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How did you know, though, who you were going to keep? Because there are, I mean, there's some minor characters that some appear more than I might have expected and some appear less. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance that? How do you balance that with Ellen and William? Well, there were many murdered darlings, I have to say, and there were many people who had entire chapters who were cut. So, I mean, again, looking at the the film metaphor, there were characters I'd bring in for like a whole 10 minutes and then, you know, they're not even, they don't even get a walk on. So what you're seeing is really the tip of that proverbial iceberg, but it's part of what I wanted to do, you know, it's part of what I wanted to do in creating that epic scope. Again, and going back to that idea of the overture and opening up the story, it's about this couple, but it's also about their world. And we tend to think about heroes or imagine heroes as being these like rugged individuals who go it alone. And the crafts were in many ways, but they also had a whole world around them and people who also stood up with them and made incredibly brave choices in supporting them. And, and I wanted to know more about those people too and why and how they did what they did. Did you have any favorites? I had some disappointments. Daniel Webster, I had a moment with him and I was like, dude, really? (laughs) You know, when you grow up in New England, you're you're taught certain things. And I was like, dude, really? 
this is the compromise you make? <laughs> and I'm referring to the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, yeah. which I want to put the crafts in a slightly different context for a second, because this is part of the narrative that you have delivered that really blew my mind, that the enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act was the thing that really kind of drove us much closer to the Civil War than I think we're classically taught. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least that's how I felt. And I got a reasonably good education. And I just, I felt like there were so many gaps in what I knew. And I mean, I grew up in New England, you know, the, the sort of famously abolitionist and all of this other stuff. And I'm like, there's still gaps, like mm-hmm. big gaps. And Daniel Webster was part of that. So, you know, we've got Fillmore as president. Yeah. There's this whole timeline, and I didn't quite know, I think, how close we were to cracking apart before we did. I mean, did you know that walking in, or is that something you uncovered as you were working on the research? I think it just became all the like bigger to me, okay. you know. I mean, we all grow up, and in, for I don't know, like history, U.S. history, you learn right. about the Compromise of 1850, part, and that there's like all these different components to it. And one of the things you have to memorize is the Fugitive Slave Act. But I didn't realize how wretched those stakes were, and why right. it was such a big deal for many, many years, um, and what it meant for people, not just for people like William and Ellen Craft, but anybody who could, who could be mistaken for them, right? Any person. And by the terms of this act, this new act, really any person can be charged with being a fugitive. You can you can just have like two witnesses say this is a person I enslaved in you know Virginia or whatever, and the people who are accused have no way of fighting back. So every black person anywhere in the country is intensely vulnerable. Um, and what they're returning to or what they're taken to is just a level of, of terror um, in captivity that it, it's it's just hard to even summon. But then how do we end up losing sight of the crafts? I mean, they were very, very famous. And they're, they're on the lecture circuit. They're traveling. I mean, they're on the lecture circuit. Like, they, yeah, they are crazy? genuinely famous. Yeah. yeah. They're not hanging out, hiding in a cabin somewhere. They are actually in front of the public speaking. For women at the time, this was not necessarily something that was commonly done. Mm-hmm. So Ellen's a bit more of a curiosity even, you know, never mind the wearing of the pants while they escaped because oh, I mean, yeah. this, is, this is a period where that just wasn't done. Yeah, Like it just wasn't done. So the fact that she managed to pull off appearing as a white man in public, you know, and she's covered her face with bandages so that no one can notice that she doesn't have a beard or... You know, she's cut her hair, but she's hiding under a hat. Like, all of these things that she's got to do in hopes that no one notices. And then to think about the fact that, I mean, they make a decision to, you know, go on the abolitionist lecture circuit really days out of bondage. So if you think about it, they've had, like, this lifetime in bondage. They've gone on this harrowing journey. They are physically ill. Ellen is, like, physically Mm -hmm. ill after this this whole thing. And then... In Saunters, William Wills Brown, this uh, incredible lecturer, self-mancipated man, a best-selling author. I could imagine him on your show, you know, he would have lo- he's like got the gift of gab, as his biographer says. And he's like, come on, come on with me and tell the story. It's so important. And 
their original plan was to go to Canada and they might have just disappeared. But the fact is that they go again after this lifetime of trauma at this time of deep exhaustion and they're going in front of like hundreds, sometimes thousands of people in places like Boston Spaniel Hall. And when they're looking out, they're looking out at people, they have no idea who these people are. And abolitionist lectures, they routinely would get heckled and have things thrown at them. It was not going to necessarily be an inviting scene. As it turned out, people were responding to them, to them really favorably. But they don't know what they're going to face right. when they're going to get on that stage. And then they're still lost to time. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you found their collective autobiography on a shelf in a graduate school library. I mean, it's not like you were sort of wandering around and there it was. I mean, we didn't grow up knowing Ellen and William Craft's names. Like, how do we lose a story like that? I don't know if I would call it lost. Okay. I think I quote the Craft's great-great-granddaughter, who is an oral historian and a poet mm-hmm. and activist and freedom writer. Her name is Peggy Trotter Damon Priestley. And the way she said it to me was that whether or not people know the story depends on where they're coming from or what kind of stories they've had exposure to. And the Kraft family, they're actually on Instagram. You can follow like their history, telling all kinds of things. They've been preserving this history incredibly well and also incredibly generously, really over the last 175 years. Um, so it's there. But I think the question has to do with American memory and what, as a nation, we are prioritizing in that memory. Um, And that is where this question of why is it that this incredible couple isn't more honored on a national scale? Why haven't they received that kind of national attention uh, that they deserve? I love the fact that you've been doing events with their great, 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 great granddaughter or great, great, great Oh, so Ms. Peggy is a great, great granddaughter, okay. but I've met great, great, greats and great, 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 greats. It, 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 you know, there are times when I, I still, I get a text. I'm like, I'm texting with you, the crass great, great granddaughter. It's just unreal. Yeah. All of this is just another way for us to get grounded in the human part of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Like when, when we encounter stories of the Civil War or stories of slavery or stories of the future. I mean, the way it's presented to us, and you know, for so long, it's been sort of this straight up. Here's a very depersonalized narrative, right? Like it's here's some statistics, here's some stuff, here's some nameless people that things happen to. And it's so important to me, not just as a reader, but as a member of our community, right? Like to be able to put names and faces and personalities into place. Like I do actually find it intriguing that Boston did not let the crafts get taken by the bounty hunters that came after them from the South. And the city was like, nope. And there were legal shenanigans and there were physical contretemps and all that kind of stuff. But the idea that the community said, hey, you can't take our people. Mm -hmm. That's something we keep missing right, in all of these narratives. And I think that's partially why there are some people who look at a history book and be like, "Mm, not for me. You're asking me to read my cultural vegetables. So did you know, though, when you were working on the rewrite? Okay, let's let's just focus (laughs) on the rewrite for a second. But you're pulling from screenwriting. Mm -hmm. You're clearly pulling from music, because I do, I love the idea of the opening of this book as an overture. 
it's really about the story, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know what you have. You know you've got to leave some stuff out. But, like, when did you know you'd found the spine of the book that we're now reading? I, it's hard to say because this is a book, you know, where despite all the log lining and all the sort of imagining of the stakes, even though I did all that preparation work, right. when it came to actually uh, writing it, I really kind of tried to tap into a much more spontaneous place. So I've always been an outliner. I've always been somebody who's done all the research first right. and then, out, you know, and and outlined everything carefully. And and then, you know, what I started with, like at the end, it's like what I started with, it's 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 pretty consistent. This mm-hmm. this was not going to happen with this book, and so in some ways I had to kind of trick myself into into writing it from another place. And okay. the Jelly Bellies helped, but also doing all that work and then sitting down and sitting down at the keyboard like I was sitting down at a piano mm-hmm. and writing in whatever shape it came out in. And and at that point for me actually it was um, I was writing it really what looks like verse. So. The only person who's seen this verse writing is my writing partner, who the first time she saw it, she's like, what the heck is this? And I'm like, this is like my pre-thing. But I write in these very short lines, in these very short chapters, and I just do it in sort of one take, and that gives me the feel of it. And then I go in and I, um, sometimes I layer things, but for some reason, actually, that first take is pretty, the spontaneous thing ends up, it ends up having some sort of, I don't know, movement in it that, that, that I want to keep. So it was really, it was just moving from bit to bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think there was a moment where I kind of conceived the spine. It's more like it was written okay. and then I could go back and see that a spine existed. But you're approaching this as both biographer and historian. I mean, I feel like you can't, in this case, you can't separate the two. I mean, there, there are arguments to be made that you're a biographer or you're a historian, whatever. But I do think in this case, you're doing two things at once, right? Like, to extend the musical metaphor for a second, you're playing the Mm -hmm. piano with both hands. Yeah, yes. And so you've got to be able to hold tight to the crafts and to all of the people in their orbit. Yeah. But also be able to keep them in context. And, I mean, I got very attached to them as people. It was the context that kept kind of breaking my brain (laughs) um, as we were going because I just... I was a little surprised by how many gaps I had. And again, like perfectly decent public school education, (laughs) but it's the way we teach history and sort of who gets to tell stories, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think we very often we either get the gigantic picture or we get like the really super close up, right? So we're following a person and their adventure and their life, or we're looking at, United States history. And I don't know, that's when we get people like John C. Calhoun and Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and everything is like this. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to show, you know, Henry Clay as being the guy who ladies would line up to kiss his cheek or Calhoun just looking like he was going to die. He was really on his deathbed when he came in for that compromise speech or Mm -hmm. Daniel Webster, who had his own private drinking room and this just like crazy little miniature for, uh, you know, I won't go into the R-rated details, but our X-rated details actually. But for me, those are the kinds of details that made me, made them come alive as a person. Mm -hmm. So I tried to do both, like go, you know, into that little miniature, into the drinking room and out, 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 out into the giant national stakes and put the crafts there. 
I didn't quite also realize that the abolitionists were not as united as maybe had been presented. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it was kind of like there were abolitionists and then there were not abolitionists. And that was it. And I'm like, well, actually, it seems like there was a whole range of views. I mean, this is obviously where the compromise comes out, where yeah. Daniel Webster is saying, well, I'm more concerned about preserving the union of the United States, right? Yes. Than I am about letting you know, different legislation pass. And it just, there's a lot in this book that feels very contemporary, mm -hmm. I think, for a lot of us, that it's just kind of like, you know, there's that Arthur Schlesinger book, The Cycles of American History, which I haven't thought about in a minute, but it literally, he argues that we keep basically doing the same thing. Mm -hmm over and over again. And here I am sitting with your book and enjoying what I'm learning and what it's making me think about and why I'm thinking about it and also thinking, oh, wow, we have not really <laughs> moved forward as a community or a culture or a society or a country, if you, however you want to define it, right? Yeah. Or even like, I mean, the abolitionists are a great case in point because mm -hmm. we tend to look at them as, oh, look at these elevated people and they're singing harmoniously and uh, anti-slavery, but actually they were squabbling. There was a lot of ego. There was a lot, you know, they just got really petty over different things and they had the vision too. So they were very, like, it's, there are a lot of parallels, I think, to party politics right now. Yeah. I mean, there was some racism happening too mm -hmm. in the abolition mm -hmm. community oh, yeah. and you're just like, oh, so people are being people. <laughs> as annoying as it is to sort of discover that we haven't really moved forward, I think it's really powerful mm -hmm. to just sit with the discomfort, right? To sit with the discomfort reading this in 2023 and looking back on all of the change we tried to make happen and some genuinely we did make happen. And yet, wow. Yeah, and I think it's it's helpful too in that uh I mean this is 175 years ago. So I think most people don't feel like the stakes are so high right now in talking about what happened 175 years ago. So if we can pause for a moment, look at this as a kind of case study, look at how people are arguing with each other, look at how close we were to civil war and how we got through it and how we might do things differently or what we might learn from it. It gives us a safe distance to be able to talk about the very things that are happening right now. It's why we need to talk about history, right? It's why <laughs> yeah. we need to teach history. It's why we need to allow for, shall we say, new additions to the historical record, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just thinking of Ned Blackhawk's book, too. It just won the National Book Award. And he has sort of laid out a more inclusive vision of what America is about, because he's including indigenous people and writing it from that POV. And, you know, before you might get sort of King Philip's War, mm -hmm. right? Or the French-Indian War. And so to have someone at Yale sit down and say, well, actually, let me fill in the gaps for you. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what you're doing with the crafts and giving us much more than just the portrait of a couple I'm now quite very fond of. But the idea of saying, hey, wait a minute, we need to look at, we need to start with 1848, right? We need, as you described it. Revolutions everywhere, countries changing. We finally have a telegraph. Like all of these things, right? The railroads are happening. Like everything is changing, and yet people are kind of people. Mm -hmm. 
Is there anything we can actually do beyond say, well, we should study more, we should read more, we should tell more stories? Like, we've kind of been doing that. Like, I don't know. Is there anything we can take away from the crafts? I mean, they themselves, I feel like, are the model American heroes, right? Because they are doing... On the one hand, there are these rugged, they're going rugged individualists going on this journey, you could say, right? You could or you could say it's a love story. But mm-hmm. it doesn't stop when they cross the border into uh into the north. They're constantly making incredibly difficult choices, not for the not just for themselves, but really for their community, for their nation. I mean, so first they go and speak on the circuit, then they stand up in Boston, and then they go speak to the world. They're constantly putting themselves in danger. Once they're overseas, and I get, I, I won't like you know go into it and spoil anything either. But for me, they really challenge my idea of what it means to be an American, and they challenge the country to do better at every possible stage. What do you think they would think of where we are now? Do you think Ellen and William would have thought that we've made that we've successfully changed, or do you think they'd sort of be staring at us with a raised eyebrow, going, hmm? I mean, I realize that's kind of a wild question to ask, but I I do feel like they were sort of split between doing what they needed to do for themselves and their marriage and their families and but also like always keeping an eye to the bigger thing. And that's really hard to do. Maybe they weren't thinking about legacy per se. But I don't know. Have you ever had that conversation with their well, great-great-granddaughter? Well, I, I love the question, but actually to answer it would be to go against the rules that I set for myself when okay. I when I started with this okay. book, which is that I can only describe or attribute feelings to them that I can document. Okay, that's fair. Fiction for me is totally off limits when it comes to the crafts. Just that's sort of my way of respecting their story. But I can say that they invite all this kind of imagination and what I imagine, one thing I think I, I could imagine, I imagine their wonderment at the descendants and the legacy that they left in terms of their own family. Like that must have been beyond their wildest dreams, but I, I can't imagine that they would have any other reaction but to be incredibly gratified by by who's standing here now. You know, I know we've talked a lot about the crafts and their personalities, and I love what you just said about not being able to put sort of experiences to them, you know, unless you have the actual documentation. And I think that's really important to be able to run that balance between telling a great story, but never losing sight of the people. And I think you make a really good and important point, and you do it throughout the book, right? Like talking about them as being visionaries, talking about them as having a responsibility to the community. I mean, I don't think it's overstating it to say they're heroic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's really how I saw them from the beginning. And actually, I tried to make that point really from the get-go, from the overture. They are running by the words from the Declaration of Independence, which they've heard somewhere in Macon. They weren't allowed to read them, but they did hear them. These words were in the ether. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They have those lines in their ears. And they have uh, the biblical verse as well, you know, God making um, of uh, one blood all nations of men, right? So these are incredibly powerful lines that they've heard in church, they've heard on the courthouse steps, and they are interpreting them for themselves. They're taking the lessons of these words 
for themselves. And they're carrying them all the way through their lives, through their journey, but also beyond as they're speaking, they're storytelling, and they're really fighting for a better America. That's such an important point, I think, too, especially when we've been told so many stories that are, pardon me, black and white, mm -hmm. right? Like it's it's one thing or the other. And you're kind of giving us all of the messy isn't quite the right word. The human, like it's very, very human. People are imperfect. Oh, yeah. People are driven by emotion. The craft's love story is really fun, but it's also painful. I mean, they're running. One, they're enslaved, but also they don't want their children to experience this. And I mean, that's a really fundamental human, like, I want my children to have better. I want my children to not go through what I went through. Yeah. And when you think about really the deep trauma that they each experience being separated from their families, I mean, it's just it hangs over. On the one hand, it's that deep love that they each experience, Ellen with her mother and William with his parents. It's that love that that gives them a model for love, that enables them to love. But it's also the fear of losing that love that terrifies them, that keeps them actually from wanting to get married. Ellen doesn't want to get married for a long time because she doesn't want to replicate that trauma. And yet it's also that fear that motivates them to go because they're reaching for something better because the love has inspired them to know that there's something better. I think, too, when you haven't been faced with the loss of your immediate family, mm -hmm. and especially when it's something like okay, your family is being separated because members of your family are being sold, and I'm just going to let that hang in the air for a second because that's significant trauma. And I think sometimes because it was so long ago, people are like, well, you know, um, and I don't think you can, well, you know. Um, with a legacy like that. Mm -hmm. Can we, for a second, go back to influences? I know we've talked about sort of screenwriting and whatnot, but you're pulling, and I just realized I was about to say craft. <laughs> I was impressed you actually haven't used those puns yet. <laughs> well, oh, I'm not really a pun person. But in terms of technical skill, Right. Mm -hmm. And and the building of the narrative and the short chapters and the cinematic techniques and, and whatnot. You must have been influenced, though, by the amount of fiction that you read. Oh, yeah. And I'm kind of curious who some of those writers might be. I mean, you've described yourself in other interviews as a recovering academic, which will never not make me laugh. <laughs> but let's talk influences for a second, because I feel like they're not just the music and the art and the cinema. I do think there are some writers in there that you're pulling from. Yeah, the short chapters, I mean, I have to footnote all the light we cannot see because that, I mean, it was gorgeous writing and I thought, but it's moving so quickly. How's it moving so quickly? And I thought, oh, he's got super short little chapters. That's what's making it move. The other one for structure would be Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad. And the way he can, I mean, that first opening chapter mm -hmm. with Ajari, I mean, he's flying through space and time. He's got great, uh, great descriptions of trains mm -hmm. um, and talk about sort of science, some science fiction techniques and, and just throwing your reader into that world and just making them figure it out. I mean, he is he is really the I was going to say master of that, but I will not say that. 
he's really the authority on that kind of narrative uh, power. We can't separate ourselves from our history, and we shouldn't want to separate ourselves from our history, right? Like, we carry this stuff around with us. And if we just pretend it doesn't exist, then that's not accomplishing anything either. What I love is listening to you riff on pulling from music and film and Coulson and Tony Dorr and all of these places where it's like, yeah, it all comes together in the service of story mm-hmm. and making our worlds bigger, right? And I read because I want more. I want to know more. I don't want to assume that I have all of the answers. I mean, yeah, I know what I like. I like great sentences. I don't necessarily need characters. I don't need to like characters, but I need to be invested. And I was invested, even in the people that I was not expecting to be invested in. Like, I was, I just wanted to see if anyone was going to surprise me. Mm -hmm. You know, and some people did in good ways and some people did in not so great ways. But I kind of was surprised by ever, like, even Ellen's family. You know, her father was also her first enslaver. And her half-sister, who was her final enslaver, didn't attempt to enforce the Fugitive Slave Attack, it was her husband, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, but even he, he's such an interesting character because I think if you read his words now, mm-hmm. if you look at his position now, you think, oh, like what a wretched guy, like he's an enslaver and he believes in all this stuff. But in his world and in his times, he was not seen as an extremist. Right. They actually called him a sub, which mm-hmm. is short for submissionist, meaning submitting to the North. And he actually, there's one situation where he actually keeps a newspaper man from hanging, a man who was accused of being abolitionist just for reprinting something that had like, I don't know, something mildly critical. I mean, that was so much of the pleasure of reading Master Slave, Husband, Wife for me was not being able to predict where you were going to take me. Partially, yeah, that's slightly due to gaps in my historical my understanding of the historical record, but also I just really wanted to know what was going to happen next. And I really wanted to know who was going to show up for the crafts and who wasn't. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was really invested, really invested in how you were letting things unfold. And I'm wondering if writing this book changed you. I mean, it really did. And every moment and every character and every situation I wrote mm-hmm. about, I really was trying to go for, to to try to see as much as I could of both sides, to not represent people in black and white or worlds in black and white. We talked earlier about sort of that North-South divide. And there's a tendency in our country, and I mean, I'm I was born and raised in New England, and we kind of celebrate our, our look, we stood up, we're for liberty. And But actually, the North had slavery. We had deep ties to slavery, not just, I mean, it's not just that we had slavery. Even once it was gone, there are people who are profiting from it. So slavery was a national institution. And I think when we talk about the crafts crossing that boundary and not being free, we're really talking about the whole of America and that you can't just say one part of it was guilty, right, in this institution. We were all complicit in this. You know, so some of us did stand up, some of us didn't. But it, we were a nation torn, and that's why we're really on the cusp of war when the crafts came through. And, 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 and for me, that's where a lot of the drama comes in um, and how the ch- crafts challenge that. What's next? <laughs>
Well, you know, I'm I'm continuing to speak a lot. I'm I'm doing a lot of oral storytelling. I'm I think that this is going to change me as a storyteller, I think too. I'm doing a lot more with images. There's so many images. I mean, when you open up the book, it's it's in the paperback as well as in the hardcover. You can see uh, pictures of all these people who are standing up in the craft with the crafts in black and white. So I'm getting to play around with images. This is something that I've been saving for you, Miwa, which is mm-hmm. that like I'm I, I actually so like you know the history is still alive. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm still finding things, so I don't feel like I'm quite done with the crafts yet. Um, I actually went to uh, the Northborough Historical Society at the invitation of the curators there. And they were like, we have some more stuff. I mean, that's the thing. Like, the story is an opening and new history is coming out. Fortunately, nothing like, you know, huge, nothing that changes what I already wrote. But, you know, when the crafts were first telling their story on the road and, you know, they're talking about the fact that they have relatively privileged positions in slavery and that there are other people who experienced far worse than they did. So somebody in the audience, because they have this Q&A, somebody in the audience stands up and, and says, well, if it wasn't so bad, why did you run? You want to know what William Craft said back? Yes, says, very much. My place is vacant and you can have it if you wish. <laughs> so, I mean, I just love hearing these little bits, right? These like sound bites from the archives. I could hear his voice, this mm-hmm. ironic, just extemporaneous, wonderfully energetic uh, zinger. It also sounds really modern. Yeah. Really fr- like I could imagine someone saying that right now and it's part of why i appreciate it so much that connection right mm-hmm. to this story that took place 175 years ago yeah and here's this guy who i would very much like to hang out with off the page obviously this is not <laughs> possible but that to me is the sign of a great read mm-hmm. right where i'm still thinking about people real or imagined after i'm done reading something for the first time. I mean, that is so important to me. Ilion Wu, thank you so much. But before I let you go, is there anything we missed? I wanted to tease you about Middlemarch. <laughs> oh, we can make more jokes about Middlemarch. We can totally, we can absolutely always make jokes about Middlemarch. As you know, I'm a fan of the show. Mm-hmm. And when I was listening to your uh, interview with Gilbert Cruz, I noticed two things. One, you had not yet read my book, but there was hope. And the other is that you had not yet read Middlemarch, but there was hope. And there's a connection I could tell you about. Okay, please do. <laughs> please do. So actually, I have read Middlemarch, I think, four times. I read it once okay. in high school okay. and it is like, I, I understand it's totally forbidding. There's so many different characters that it's incredibly dense. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it really is like a brick and it, it's hard to track, but where it, it really blew my mind was in graduate school. So okay. I took a class with Edward Said and oh. this was when Edward Said, he, it was his, in his last days. He was, he's dying at this point. Okay. And he was teaching whatever he wanted to teach. So that included Middlemarch and also included like Meistersinger. I mean, like whatever he wanted was music, you know, it could be that opera. It could be. So this, these were the books that he felt were really important and the stakes were so high. And what he said about Middlemarch is it takes place in the middle of the 19th century, in the middle of the 1840s, in the middle of England, middle, middle, middle in so many ways. You get that in the title. And yet you have in this very middle place this woman 
the story of this woman and how she makes an extraordinary impact um, and all around her and, and how that works its way out into the world. And that is in many ways how I wanted to frame the story of Eleanor William Craft. All right. Now I might actually <laughs> it's become sort of a running joke that I still haven't done. And, and I'm adding you to the list of writers who've said, no, no, really, you would like this. You should do it. You touched on exactly the heart for me of what you've done with Master Slave Husband Wife, which is put me into a world that I did not previously know and make me not want to leave. I mean, that, that really is the sign of a great read. <laughs> like, I really didn't want it to be over. I really did not. I didn't want to leave the crafts. I was a little surprised by the ending, and that's all I'm going to say. They make a choice after a few years, and I'm going to let readers discover what that choice was. But I was a little surprised. I was not expecting that. Can I ask you a question? Did you sure. read the paperback or did you read the hardcover? Hardcover. Because actually, I learned something new for the paperback, and oh. that changes something at the end. Oh, it transforms a particular moment, a reunion that I will not. Um, okay. Blow, then when but... you and I finish recording, I am going to ask you about that, but we're not putting it here. <laughs> we're just going to turn it off. <laughs> I'm going to say thank you. This was amazing. I'm so glad we got to have this conversation, but it's kind of hard to do sometimes when you're leaving out all of the spoilery stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but this was excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ilion Wu. Thank you for the book but also your time. We really appreciate it. Master Slave Husband Wife is out in paperback now. And now I have to run downstairs and get a paperback so I can look at the chain <laughs> uh, that was made because I was working off a hardcover. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.